underlying theme of truthfulness in his personal and business lives that he describes as one of the key character traits to aspire to. As he says, you don't want to be in business with people who need a contract to be motivated to perform. In the world of business, a manager who is as honest as the day is long is money that is already in the bank. Chapter 10. Manage Costs The really good business manager doesn't wake up in the morning and say, this is the day that I'm going to cut costs, any more than he wakes up and decides to practice breathing. Warren Buffett Profit is the lifeblood of a business. Lack of profit is the death of a business. The only way to make a profit in business is to have lower costs than the prices you are charging for the products that you sell. The difference between the two is called a profit margin. There is no other way to make money, no other equation. You either make a profit or you don't. And if you don't make a profit, you won't stay in business very long. If you make a lot of profit, you can do more than just make a living. You can become rich. As managers of business, we have two main goals. Inspire our sales force to sell as much of the product as possible at the highest possible price. And inspire our manufacturing and buying teams to produce or acquire the products we sell at the lowest possible prices. It takes two to tango, and it takes two to make a profit. The task of keeping costs low is the most important because it determines the pricing of the product. Lower costs mean that we can sell the product at a lower price, which will make the product more desirable and easier to sell. The way to determine whether your managers are going to be cost conscious is to look at how they handle the seemingly little costs. Warren says, if managers aren't disciplined on the little things, they will probably be undisciplined on the large things as well. He likes to tell the story of Benjamin Rosner, the owner of Associated Cotton Shops, who was so fanatical about keeping costs low that he once counted the sheets on a roll of toilet paper to make sure that his vendor wasn't cheating him. Warren also likes to tell about Tom Murphy, CEO of Capital Cities Communications, who was so cost-conscious that when he had his office building painted, he didn't paint the back wall because no one would see it. Tom considered public relations and legal departments to be frivolous expenses. He figured that if and when these services were needed, freelancers could be hired at a fraction of the cost. And when he merged Capital Cities with the ABC television network, the first thing he got rid of was ABC's private dining room. Warren loved Tom. Another aspect of the cost-cutting equation deals with personal savings. If we are in a 40% tax bracket, we have to earn $10 to have $6 to spend. So if we reduce our living costs by $6, it is actually the same as making $10 and getting to save $6 of it, which can then be invested. As Benjamin Franklin said, if you know how to spend less than you get, you have the Philosopher's Stone. The Philosopher's Stone was a tool alchemists used to turn lead into gold. In the early part of Warren's life, he was fanatical about keeping his living costs low which is why he drove an old VW Beetle long after he became a multimillionaire. The money he had saved driving a cheap car gave him more money to invest to make himself even richer. The bottom line here is this. When Warren looks for a manager, he wants someone who is cost-conscious as a way of life, not just when the business is starting to fail. Cutting costs is the fastest and easiest way to increase the bottom line of both our businesses and our personal fortunes, which means that it is the easiest way to get rich. And easy is always a good thing when it comes to making money.
Chapter 11 Have an Eye for the Long Term There's really a lot of overlap between managing and investing. Being a manager has made me a better investor, and being an investor has made me a better manager. Warren Buffett Warren is a long-term investor. His favorite holding period for companies with exceptional economics working in their favor is forever. This long-term perspective is the fountain that produced his great wealth. But most managers of businesses tend to have a time horizon of under a year. They live in a world defined by quarterly and yearly results. If they surpass quarterly or yearly projections, they'll get fat bonuses and promotions. Fail to bring in quarterly or yearly projections and head start to roll. This tends to keep management focused on the short term. The short-term focus almost kills any long-term planning on the part of management. Managers are driven to make the short-term numbers at the cost of long-term planning. They often have no plans to exploit future opportunities, nor do they plan ahead for a potential recession. This is reactive management as opposed to the proactive management that Warren practices. Warren learned from investing that the long-term perspective that had served him so well personally would also serve him well in businesses. One of the first things that Warren asks his managers to do when they join his firm is to stop worrying about the short-term ups and downs of the business and focus on making the business strong and viable for the long term. Another lesson that Warren learned is that any management's intense focus on the short term tends to make those managers poor allocators of capital, which creates two very big problems. The first is that management may keep throwing good money after a mediocre business long after it's time to put that capital to use elsewhere. The second is that when management tries to allocate capital outside its core business, it almost always ends up buying a short-sighted promise of prosperity at an inflated price. Warren often cites Coca-Cola's failed venture into the movie business as a perfect example of a great business throwing money after a bad one. When Warren bought into Berkshire Hathaway, it was a mediocre business that was spending more money than it was earning in a desperate attempt to compete with foreign textile manufacturers. After Warren acquired control, he had the insight to see that it was a dying business, so he stopped spending Berkshire's working capital on the textile business and used it to acquire an insurance company, which is a better business from a long-term perspective. How did he know that that textile business wasn't going to make it and that insurance was going to be the better business. Warren had spent a great amount of time studying a large number of businesses and knew what a great long-term business looked like. This is also how he knew that the textile company was a lousy business and that no matter how much money he threw at it, its underlying economics would never improve. Eventually, Berkshire had to close its textile operations, but by then, its insurance operations were well on their way to helping Berkshire blossom into the financial powerhouse that it is today. The managers who ran Berkshire's textile operations would have spent the company's last dime trying to stay competitive with foreign manufacturers. It was lucky for Berkshire shareholders that Warren had the clarity of vision to see what the future of the textile business looked like and the foresight to invest the company's working capital in a company that had far better long-term prospects. Ultimately, Warren learned when he looks for a great manager, he is also looking for a great investor, whose responsibility is to invest the firm's money in people, products, and new businesses, always with the long-term perspective in mind. Chapter 12, How to Determine Salaries If you have a great manager, 
You want to pay them very well. Warren Buffett Great managers are like great football coaches. They are few and far between. How do you measure whether or not a manager is great? Not all businesses are the same. Some businesses have mediocre economics, while others have exceptional economics. Those with exceptional economics working in their favor are often the types of businesses that make even a lousy manager look good. On the other side, even an exceptional manager may not look too spectacular if he or she is managing a mediocre business. How do we tell the difference? Warren examines how well a manager is doing by measuring the manager's performance against others in his industry. For example, if we own a business that is earning 20% on shareholders' equity, we might think it is great and hand our manager a big bonus check at the end of the year. However, in truth, we may not be doing as well as other businesses in our industry. Do we pay our manager a bonus for giving us a mediocre result compared to others in our own industry? For Warren, the answer is no. Unexceptional performance with an exceptional business does not inspire him to dole out exceptional bonuses at the end of the year. The opposite is true of a business with mediocre economics. If our business is earning 5% on equity, we might correctly conclude that, compared to all other businesses, it is on the low end. But by comparing it to other businesses within our own industry, we might find that it is on the high end, which would indicate that our manager is keeping us ahead of the pack, and for that, he should be handsomely rewarded. Warren is a big believer in performance-based pay, as long as it is based on the value added by the manager and not the inherent economics of the business. In Warren's world, bonuses are paid according to how much the manager truly improves the underlying economics of the business, not how much the underlying economics enhances the perceived performance of the manager. Step 4. Motivate your workforce. Warren realized early on that if he was to delegate to the point of abdication, motivating his managers to achieve exceptional levels of performance would be his primary function. Once he found the right businesses and put the right managers in place, all he had left to do was motivate his managers to be all that they can be. In this portion of the audiobook, we present the management motivational skills that Warren uses. We explain what he learned from Carnegie and others and how he adapted this into a winning management style. From first impression to using praise to understanding the dangers of using criticism to the subtle use of suggestion, Warren is masterful in inspiring and influencing his managers. We begin by examining his use of first impression to set the stage. Chapter 13. Make a good first impression. When you meet someone for the first time, begin the encounter in a friendly way. Beryl Raff was a successful Dallas jewelry executive heading up J.C. Penney's retail jewelry division. Then, in the spring of 2009, she got a call from a friend in the business asking her if she'd be interested in interviewing for the job of CEO of Berkshire's Hellsberg Diamond Shops. Hellsberg's is a 90-year-old chain of 240 jewelry stores and the life's work of Diamond King Barnett Hellsberg, before he sold out to Berkshire. Beryl had long admired Warren and his company, Berkshire Hathaway. She knew the quality of the people who worked for him, the multitude of great businesses that he owned, and his stellar reputation as an enlightened CEO. 
She knew that his managers sang his praises and thought the opportunity of working for such a first-rate outfit might be the chance of a lifetime. Merely talking to Warren would be a highlight of her career. What she did not expect was to see Warren picking her up at the airport himself in his gold Cadillac. As nervous as Beryl was, Warren immediately put her at ease. She found him witty and charming. After spending a couple of hours at his office answering questions about her vision for the jewelry business, Warren took her to a delightful lunch at his country club, gave her a tour of his hometown, and then offered her the job. She thought it over for a couple of days and then accepted and has been happy ever since. Barrow says that even after just a few months on the job, she already feels like an adopted member of Warren's extended family. Warren recognizes the importance of making first encounters friendly. He started his meeting with Beryl by meeting her and offering her a ride. He was light, funny, friendly, and eager to put her at ease. He took her to lunch and listened to her. Her first impression? This is a guy I would love to work for. And Warren continues to make her feel like a special member of the Berkshire Hathaway family. She has said that her greatest fear is disappointing him. Imagine if Warren had done just the opposite. What if he hadn't picked Beryl up at the airport? What if he had made her take a cab instead? Imagine he didn't even take her to lunch or listen to her. Her first impression might have been that Warren was a distant billionaire who only cared about whether or not she would make him more money, the kind of boss she wouldn't like working for. And if that had been the case, she probably wouldn't have taken the job. The rule is simple. If you want to get your way, start your encounters with other people in a friendly way. As Warren has discovered, it's the only way that pays. Chapter 14, The Power of Praise We all have a deep and honest need to be appreciated. Warren recognizes that we all have a need to feel important. It's almost biological. Early American psychologist and philosopher William James once said, The deepest principle in human nature is the need to be appreciated. This is not lost on Warren. One of the great early managers whom Warren studied was Charles Schwab, the former head of the United States Steel Company. Schwab was the first superstar manager and the first CEO to be paid a million dollars a year. What made Schwab the most revered manager of his day was not his knowledge of the steel industry, which even he admitted wasn't extensive, but rather his ability to inspire enthusiasm in his employees. He did that through appreciation and encouragement. Schwab said, I consider my ability to arouse enthusiasm to be my greatest asset, and the way to develop the best that is in a person is by appreciation and encouragement. There is nothing that kills the ambitions of a person as much as criticisms from superiors. I never criticize anyone. I believe in giving people incentive to work, so I am anxious to praise but loath to find fault. If I like anything, I am hearty in my appreciation and hearty in my praise. Schwab noted that his boss, Andrew Carnegie, had even gone so far as to praise his employees publicly as well as privately. Warren follows Schwab's advice as if it were creed, praising employees and managers for the small things and gushing over them for the big. He is the consummate cheerleader and his employees' biggest fan. He never misses a chance to praise his managers in private or at Berkshire's annual meetings and in its annual reports. Warren learned from Schwab that if he praised people for the little things, they'd give him even bigger things to praise them for later on down the line. For Warren, 
Praise truly is the gift that keeps on giving. Chapter 15 The Power Reputation Give your employees a fine reputation to live up to and praise them every chance you get. Warren learned the importance of giving your employees a fine reputation to live up to from Carnegie, who stressed the point to his readers by telling the following story. A manager worked with a longtime trusted older employee who had become bored and lackadaisical about his work, resulting in a lowering of the worker's craftsmanship and productivity. The manager reviewed his options. He could fire the older employee, but then he'd have to replace him. He could threaten him with being fired, but the worker would probably resent him. Instead, he chose to talk to the employee one-on-one, -on -one, friend to friend. In the course of the conversation, he told the worker he was one of his best employees and that he was an inspiration to other employees and that many customers in the past had complimented his craftsmanship. But as of late, he said, the employee's work had slipped. The manager said he was worried about him and was wondering if there was anything he could do to help. How did the worker respond? Realizing he had a fine reputation to live up to, he stopped doing shoddy work, increased the level of his production, and returned to being the worker that others looked up to. Warren praises his managers as being the best in the business. He notes this admiration in his annual letters to the Berkshire shareholders, mentions it at the Berkshire's annual meeting, and talks about it when interviewed by the press. He never misses an opportunity to give his managers a fine reputation to live up to, which is easy for him to do since they are the best in the business. Advice to Bono Warren's theory on giving his manager a fine reputation to live up to dovetails with the advice he gave the rock star Bono, who sought out Warren's advice on how to inspire Americans to help him in his battle against poverty in Africa. Warren told him, Don't appeal to the conscience of America. Appeal to the greatness of America, and you'll get the job done. Appealing to a person's conscience means subtly appealing to his or her sense of right or wrong. What kind of person are you if you don't want to help poor, starving people in Africa? This plays on our sense of guilt. We tend not to like people who make us feel guilty. In fact, we spend most of our time trying to avoid them. Instead, Warren advised Bono to speak to the American people's sense of greatness. Imagine how a statement like this that plays to people's sense of guilt would have made Bono's American listeners feel. All these poor people are starving in Africa. Are you, the richest nation on earth, just going to sit there and let them starve? Now compare it to, you are the most intelligent nation on earth. You won World War II against impossible odds, and you pierced the heavens to put a man on the moon. When I was confronted with this tremendous problem of helping the poor, suffering, lost souls in Africa, I thought, to whom should I turn? Then I had an epiphany. I should turn to the greatest nation in the world, the one people that can solve really tough problems, the one nation that can accomplish the impossible. Warren advised Bono to appeal to America's sense of pride, its sense of greatness, its fine reputation. Give a person or a nation a fine reputation to live up to, and they will live up to it. Make them feel guilty and ashamed, and they will disappoint you. Using guilt is not productive. Appealing to the greatness of others is what works for Warren, and it will work for you. Most important, it works for the employees and the managers you are trying to inspire. Chapter 16. The Dangers of Criticism 
Using criticism to motivate is futile because it puts a person on the defensive, wounds his precious pride, and hurts his sense of importance and arouses resentment. Warren has discovered that uninvited criticism is something we all hate to hear. It breeds resentment. It can drive us out of our parents' house as young adults. It has been the cause of many a failed marriage. Yet many of us make the mistake of bestowing uninvited criticism on others, especially in the workplace. Warren learned long ago that criticism was not the way to inspire his managers. It doesn't make for lasting change, and it destroys any kind of productive working relationship. Instead of criticizing his managers when they make mistakes, Warren tries to understand what went wrong and why there was an error in judgment. He pays attention to his managers and their work environments, and he imagines himself in their shoes. And as long as his managers are taking intelligent risks, he affords them the luxury of making the occasional mistake. Let's take a look at Warren in action. David Sokol is one of Warren's top managers. He runs Berkshire's Mid-American Energy Company. David once spent $360 million on a zinc project that failed and had to be written off as a loss. David fully expected Warren to fire him for his colossal error in judgment. Instead of firing him or berating him with criticism, Warren, hearing the bad news, simply told David, We all make mistakes. Warren went on to say that he had made even bigger mistakes during his tenure at the helm of Berkshire Hathaway and told David to learn from his error but not to dwell on it. David thinks the world of Warren and has never made a similar mistake. On the contrary, for the last nine years, he has done a brilliant job leading Berkshire's energy operations to become some of the most profitable in the industry. But had Warren berated him, mocked his stupidity and foolishness, and criticized him, David would have come to despise Warren and it is doubtful that he would have been inspired to stay on and build Warren's mid-American energy into the money-making powerhouse that it is today. Praise by name, criticize the category. Warren knows that praise and criticism are two of the most important tools a manager has at his or her disposal. Used correctly, these tools can inspire employees to work hard, be creative, and achieve great success. Used incorrectly, they can destroy drive, ambition, and creativity, and almost certainly ensure failure. Warren feels that learning how to effectively use praise and criticism is the primary motivational task of a manager. A manager who fully understands this challenge has the ability to motivate others to greatness regardless of the task, be that motivating a production team to be more efficient and effective or getting his own children to do their homework. Warren is a genius at using both praise and criticism. His rule is simple, praise by name, criticize by category. Let's take a look at what he means. We all crave praise. Nothing makes us feel better about ourselves or inspires us more to do better, beginning early in childhood, when we vie to win the praise of our parents. Later on, seek it from our teachers. And in the workplace, look for it from our boss. We need praise. It tells us that we are on the right path and it inspires us to stay on that path and do even better. No one likes criticism. Nothing can make us feel more terrible about ourselves than to be criticized for something we did or didn't do. Nothing will inspire us less. We hated to hear criticism as children and we hate to hear it as adults. Criticism means that we got it wrong that this isn't the right path for us, that we should stop what we are doing and try again, 
or give up and do something else. We often dislike people who criticize us, which means that we won't listen to them, we shut them out. Nothing will win you friends faster than praise, and nothing will make you enemies faster than criticism. Many managers never learn how praise and criticism interact. This is one of Warren's greatest management secrets, using both praise and criticism to inspire a person to achieve more. Warren sets the stage with praise, praising both the small accomplishments and the big achievements. He never misses an opportunity to praise his managers, and he is a master at remembering names and praising people by name. Why? Because nothing is sweeter to another person than the sound of his or her own name. Read an annual report written by Warren Buffett, and you will see that it is loaded with praise for his managers, who are singled out by name. He is generous in spreading praise around. Warren elevates his managers to a lofty position and makes them feel special by continuing to praise them in person and in print. Work becomes more than just a place to make a buck. It becomes a place to boost self-esteem. Once Warren's managers respect and trust him and believe he has their best interests at heart, he is in a much better position to offer them advice. Here he employs a bit of magic as well. He never criticizes the manager directly. When a manager with whom Warren has built a solid relationship asks his opinion of a business idea and Warren is not keen on it, he'll make a subtle suggestion, leaving the manager to draw his or her own conclusion. A classic Warren response would be to acknowledge the manager's idea to say that it is enticing, and then to offer a story where Warren or another businessman had a similar idea that led to disaster, thereby leaving the manager to draw his own conclusion. Warren applies the same theory when talking about the world at large. He is quick to praise an individual banker for his or her integrity, but if he is unhappy with the banker, he will only criticize the banking profession as a whole. The banker saves face and Warren gets his point across without making an enemy. As Warren says, praise the person, criticize the category. If you must criticize people personally, praise them first. Although Warren realizes that personal criticism is poisonous, he is also a realist. He recognizes that in some cases, criticism is unavoidable. When personal criticism is necessary, he follows the advice of Carnegie, who suggested that one should compliment the person first. Criticism by itself is almost always flat out rejected. However, when criticism is preceded by praise, the listener is more accepting of the suggestion. Someone bestowing a compliment is perceived as a friend, someone we like. The people we like are those whose opinions matter to us. A compliment creates the trust that is necessary for constructive criticism to be heard and acted upon. Warren used the praise-criticism model to pacify Berkshire shareholders who were angry with him for investing in PetroChina, because PetroChina's parent company, China National Petroleum Corporation, CNPC, was making investments in Sudan. After the shareholders had made their protests, Warren began by praising their social consciousness and appreciation of the seriousness of the situation in the Sudan. Then and only then did he offer criticism of their position, arguing that since PetroChina was a subsidiary of CNPC, Berkshire had no way to influence it. Here are some general examples of the praise criticism model. 1. Business Johnny, you are doing a wonderful job at handling the mail. 
You're a great improvement over the last guy we had in this job. I'm very happy with your performance. However, your approach to handling customer complaints is still a little rough. May I offer you a few suggestions? Number two, family. I can see that by your report card that you are doing very well in spelling, which is fantastic. I'm very proud of you for doing so well. However, you seem to be running into some difficulties in math. I had that problem when I was your age, and I was wondering if you might be open to me lending a hand in getting you over this rough spot. The rule here is pretty straightforward. Avoid using criticism as it were the plague, but when you have to, praise the person first and then criticize the category. If that doesn't work, praise the person first before you criticize him directly. This approach works for Warren and it will work for anyone who is willing to open the door first with sweet praises. Chapter 17 How to Win an Argument To win an argument, you sometimes have to lose. Warren learned early on that the way to win an argument was not to have one in the first place. That to openly correct someone might cause them to lose face and in the process the person could end up resenting him. Warren learned from Carnegie that instead of taking issue with someone, it was better to agree with them so that you could win the person's trust and in the process get the person to listen to your ideas. Warren fully embraces this philosophy and he is famous for avoiding conflict and arguments. Warren is also well known for listening to people and for respecting their opinions, even when they are contrary to his own. But it is his ability to agree with the other person's argument that allows others to relax and to hear Warren's position. And Warren knows that getting the other person to listen to you is the first step to winning any argument. An example. If young Warren, as a security salesman, was out selling Geico stock and went to visit a potential client who told him that he preferred to invest in Philip Morris, Warren, instead of arguing with him, would agree that Philip Morris was a great company and a wise investment. This would put an immediate end to potential conflict and allow Warren to then engage the client in a discussion about the wonderful virtues of Geico. The Influence of Benjamin Franklin The wisdom of American founding father Benjamin Franklin has played an important role in the education of both Warren and his partner Charlie Munger. At Berkshire shareholder meetings and in annual reports, they are both quick to cite Franklin's influence on their business and life philosophies. Thus, it is no surprise that Franklin's strategy of avoiding arguments and respecting other people's opinions found its way into Warren's quiver of ways to get people to listen to his ideas. We've picked a small piece from Franklin's autobiography that Warren found influential on this point. Here is what Franklin had to say. I made it a rule to forbear all direct contradictions to the sentiments of others and all positive assertion of my own. I even forbade myself the use of every word or expression in the language that imported a fixed opinion, such as certainly, undoubtedly, etc. I adopted instead of them, I conceive, I apprehend, or I imagine, a thing to be so or so, or so it appears to me at the present. When another asserted something that I thought an error, I denied myself the pleasure of contradicting him abruptly and of showing him immediately some absurdity in his proposition. In answering, I began by observing that in certain cases or circumstances, his opinion would be right. But in the present case, there appeared or seemed to me some differences, etc. 
I soon found the advantage of this change in my manner. The conversations I engaged in went on more pleasantly. The modest way in which I proposed my opinions procured them a readier reception and less contradiction. I had less mortification when I was found to be in the wrong, and I more easily prevailed with others to give up their mistakes and join with me when I happened to be in the right. Franklin explained that his ability to persuade his fellow countrymen to follow his ideas was a result of this approach. Warren has learned that avoiding arguments and accepting others' opinions is one of the secrets to getting other people to listen to you, which just happens to be a very helpful skill to have if you are trying to build fantastic fortunes and great nations. Chapter 18 Speak to the Other Person's Wants and Needs When you want someone to do something, Stop thinking in terms of what you want and think in terms of what they want. Warren has learned that discovering what his managers need or want and being able to speak to their needs and wants is one of the great secrets to being successful as a manager and a business owner. One of Warren's early influences in this area was Henry Ford, the great industrialist of the 20th century. Ford, in his autobiography, said, If there is any one secret of success, it lies in the ability to get the other person's point of view and see things from that person's angle as well as from our own. Warren incorporated this idea into both his family and business lives. When he wanted his children to do something or to change their behavior instead of nagging or criticizing them, he spoke to their wants. If he wanted them to lose weight, he offered a reward for weight loss, which spoke to their teenage want of ready cash. When seeking to buy a privately held family business for Berkshire Hathaway, Warren speaks to the owner's pride in the business. He understands that the owner may want to sell the company for the most money possible, but that person also needs to make sure that the company's loyal employees are well taken care of and that once sold, the company isn't broken apart and sold off piece by piece. Over the years, Warren has enticed more than a dozen businessmen and women to sell their privately held companies to him. Even when those owners have been offered more money by other companies and leveraged buyout firms. In the case of the Nebraska Furniture Mart, owner Rose Blumkin had been offered $80 million for the entire company by a German conglomerate. She wanted the money, but really didn't want to give up running the business she had built and loved. So instead of selling out to the Germans, she sold 90% of it to Warren for $40 million because he agreed that Mrs. B and her sons could stay on and continue running the entire show. Warren got a fantastic business at a great price with the brilliant Mrs. B and her all-star management team thrown into the deal, all because he spoke to her needs. And there is little doubt that A.L. Yulchi, founder and chairman of Flight Safety, would have gotten more money if he had sold out to a leverage buyout firm. But Warren spoke to his needs and offered him the best of both worlds. A ton of money and the chance to keep working at what he loves to do, which is running Flight Safety. What did Warren get? He got a terrific business run by a genius of a man at a price that still keeps him smiling. Does it get any better than that? Chapter 19. Encourage Others to Come Up with the Right Idea Inducing the other person to come up with the right idea is far more powerful as a motivational tool than telling them the right idea. Warren is famous for hiring people and then not telling them what to do. Instead, he lets them set their own goals and standards. Invariably, they set the bar higher than he would have. Warren's managers would say that even though he never tells them what he expects from them, they know that he expects a great deal.
His silence induces his managers to imagine that he expects a lot, and this becomes the reality that drives their performance. Tell someone to do something, and it becomes an order. No one likes to be ordered about. We naturally resist anyone who gives us orders. However, if it is our idea, we treat it as gospel and act on it with purpose and conviction. We are in control. A perfect example is a motivational story that Carnegie used to tell about an auto dealership sales manager who, after many failed attempts at motivating his salesman, finally called his sales team together and asked them to tell him what they expected of him as a manager. As he listened to their answers, he wrote them out on a blackboard. Then he asked what he had a right to expect from them. They spoke right up, saying that he could expect them to be honest, hard-working team players and that they would show initiative and optimism. They would set their own standards. Did they live up to them? Not only did they live up to them, they far exceeded them, bringing in record sales. It's a very simple concept that is easy to put into action in our everyday lives. Here are a few examples. Instead of ordering someone not to do something, illustrate the negative consequences of doing it. Don't swim in the lake becomes, there are crocodiles in the lake and they like to eat little children. The child is then induced to thinking of crocodiles eating him, which compels him not to swim in the lake. Instead of ordering someone to do something, illustrate the positive consequences of doing it. I want sales production to increase, becomes, if sales production increases, it will make me happy and I'll be able to pay bigger bonuses at Christmas. The workers realize that an increase in sales will make for a happy manager and bigger Christmas bonuses. If you're wondering how to better manage your children, try using the same method. Sit your children down at the beginning of the school year and ask them what they expect out of you in the coming year. List their expectations, discussing them as you go. When you are finished and are comfortable with their expectations, agree to them. Then ask what you can expect out of them. You might just be shocked at how demanding they can be of themselves. Ask questions instead of giving direct orders. As we just said, Warren is famous among his managers for never giving a direct order. He is also well known for asking tons of questions. Warren recognizes that no one likes to get a direct order, just as no one likes to be told what to do. Bossy managers are usually hated and are the least likely to inspire workers to excel. A direct order might work in the military, but in civilian life, it can cause lingering bitterness that drags on performance. Warren learned that great managers give their orders indirectly by a way of making suggestions. One way to make a suggestion is simply by asking questions. Asking questions makes your suggestion more palatable and often stimulates employees to come up with their own ideas for solving the problem. We are more willing to act on our own ideas than to act on others' ideas, especially when we are being ordered around. It is always better to let people figure something out for themselves. If that's not possible, then give them a little nudge in the right direction with a suggestion framed as a question. Here are a few examples of how to use a question to convert a direct order which will offend employees, into a suggestion which will stimulate them to willingly act. Direct order. I want that job done by Monday. Suggestion. It would be great if we could get that job done by Monday. Do you think you can come up with a way to do that? Direct order. Slow down. You're driving too fast. Suggestion. You know the roads are rather slick. Do you think that if we slowed down that that would make it safer? Direct order. 
This is not the way to do it. Suggestion. Can you think of a better way to do that? Direct order. I want you to do it this way. Suggestion. Do you think that if we did it this way that it would turn out better? Direct order. When we go to the zoo, I want you to stay by my side. Suggestion. When we go to the zoo, can you think of any reasons why you should stay by my side? Warren seldom gives a direct order, but he is famous for peppering his managers with lots of questions. Now you know why. Chapter 20 Everyone Makes Mistakes Admit It When we are wrong, we should admit it quickly and emphatically. Warren believes that when people are wrong, they should be right up front about it and admit it quickly and emphatically. To do otherwise would give the impression that we are trying to hide something or that we have neither the courage nor the integrity to admit when we are wrong. This kind of behavior leads people to mistrust us. No one can stand anyone who is always right, and no one can stand someone who won't admit when they're wrong. And if they won't admit when they're wrong, what else are they lying about? The accounting books, maybe? Also, managers who don't or refuse to admit that they are wrong cause a kind of festering distrust among the employees. They become less respectful, less willing to follow, more distrustful of management's recommendations and guidance. Warren is always upfront about any and all mistakes that he makes, is forthcoming with his managers when he blows it, and is the first to admit to the shareholders when he screws up. And they love him for it. When he recently made a bad investment in a couple of Irish banks that cost Berkshire several hundred million, he was right up front about it. When he blew an investment in ConocoPhillips, an oil company he had bought into when oil was $140 a barrel, his error cost Berkshire $2 billion. But he didn't hesitate for a second to admit to Berkshire shareholders his mistake. He didn't try to blame someone else or say that other people had made similar mistakes. He just said he made an error in judgment and it was his fault. By admitting when he was wrong and being forthcoming about it, Warren wins the trust of his employees and shareholders alike, and at the same time avoids all the political fallout that has taken down great men since the beginning of time. Step 5. Managerial Pitfalls, Challenges, and Learning Opportunities The final chapters in this audiobook include some of Warren's important axioms regarding the dangers of borrowing too much money, employees breaking the law, good ideas gone astray, making mistakes, managing sycophants, missing opportunities, seeing the road ahead, and a few bits of wisdom for managing our own lives. All learn the hard way, by experience. Weigh them carefully, as they will not only help keep you out of managerial trouble, they will also help get you out of it. Chapter 21 The Hidden Dangers of Making a Living on Borrowed Money the roads of business are riddled with potholes. A plan that requires dodging them all is a plan for disaster. Warren Buffett Managers of businesses that have to borrow a lot of money are gambling that they won't hit any economic potholes in the road ahead. Their business plan requires dodging problems. But even the best-run businesses can't dodge problems forever if they are heavily leveraged. Banks are the king of leverage. They have to borrow all that money they lend out, and most of that money was borrowed short-term and loaned out long-term. When those people who loan the money to the bank short-term want it back, and the bank can't pay it back, well, that's when things start to get messy. 
Economic change can offer lots of opportunity, provided we have the cash to take advantage of it. Economic change can also mean disaster if we have taken on too much debt to survive it. Life is full of economic change, always has been, always will be. Leverage is very tempting and always leads to trouble. Warren Buffett The temptation of leverage is that it can dramatically improve the performance of any business for the manager who learns how to use it. Let's say that in a normal year, the business you manage earns a $6 million profit without any debt. You have a business opportunity that costs $100 million, but it will earn $15 million a year. This sounds promising, doesn't it? The catch is that your business doesn't have the $100 million needed to finance the deal. Your friendly Wall Street bank is more than willing to loan you the $100 million if you agree to pay it $10 million a year in interest. This means that after paying the $10 million in interest, you will earn a net profit of $5 million on the $15 million in new business. Add in the $6 million on the old business, and your company is now earning a total of $11 million. Make the deal, and you almost double your net earnings. Guess who gets the big bonus at the end of the year? You do, for your brilliant managing of the company's assets. With the Wall Street investment banks, the game of leverage was played out to an extreme. Borrow $100 billion at 5% short-term and load it out at 7% long-term, and suddenly your firm is earning $2 billion a year in profit, and the financial press is writing about your $50 million salary. Now you know why managers tend to push their companies to take on as much leverage slash debt as they can possibly put to profitable use. However, there is a catch and it's a big one. What happens if there's a recession and your company's business income makes a dramatic drop to the point that you cannot generate enough money to service the debt? In this case, you would start burning up the company's net worth until either the economy turned around and the business improved or you were forced to put the company into bankruptcy. When companies begin contemplating bankruptcy, the company's old management is usually the first to go. However, if the company hadn't taken on the $100 million debt when the recession hits, all the company would have to do is cut back production to the point that it would meet the new lower level of demand, at which point it would start making money again. Yes, people would have lost their jobs, but the survival of the company would not be in question. When Warren looked at a company during the 50s and 60s, he always asked, how did it manage through the Great Depression? Did it do well, or did it fail? This told him a great deal about the historical nature of the company and its need to use debt. Warren still looks at the long-term historic performance of a company. He often mentions that companies that he has major investments in, like Coca-Cola and Wells Fargo, have hundred-year histories. These are businesses that not only survived the Great Depression, they are companies that are going to survive the current recession as well. But he still keeps a watchful eye on how much debt all the companies he owns carry, knowing that in hard times it can kill even the best of businesses. Warren's own Berkshire Hathaway has long avoided going into debt. If Warren can't pay for it with cash, he isn't interested. Warren even takes it further by letting cash pile up if he can't find a good value, which also protects Berkshire against hard times. In the heat of the Great Recession of 2009, Berkshire was sitting on very little debt and only a very comfortable cushion of $20 billion in cash. This gave Warren plenty of restful nights and the economic firepower to take advantage of the lower stock prices that the recession brought. Old-school managers like Warren are very reluctant to use debt to improve earnings. They lived through the hard times and have the scars to prove it. 
but in the last fifteen years, the quick buck meant fast promotions and big bonuses. So the new generation piled on the debt, and in the Great Recession of 2009, many found themselves dangling over the abyss of financial failure and the sudden end of their briefly successful careers. Sometimes old dogs know all the tricks. Chapter 22 Do Good Ideas Always Bear Fruit? You can get into way more trouble with a good idea than a bad one. Warren Buffett